What's up, everybody? I'm Mike Wilson with Any Hour Services, and we're proud to help bring you this podcast. If you ever need a resource for information about your home's electrical, plumbing, heating, or air conditioning system, you can find Any Hour Services on Facebook, YouTube, or online at anyhourservices.com. I'm Scott Trout, CEO of the domestic litigation firm Cordell & Cordell. We help men deal with the life changes triggered by divorce, such as child custody and property division, among many others. But life changes also occur after divorce. These changes can make parts of your existing court order irrelevant or harder to follow. If you feel a modification to your court orders might be necessary, talk to us at Cordell & Cordell. We're a partner men can count on. Contact CordellCordell.com, 1065 East Hillsdale Boulevard, Suite 310, Foster City, California, 94404. This is Ideation Collective. I'm Jess Larson. Today on the show, I've got Gary Peterson. The problem a lot of companies have uh, when they try to implement lean is that they implement some of the tools of lean. They put Kanban in or they standardize processes or uh, they do 5S and they say to themselves, okay, we did lean. And I really think when you first do that, you get some gains, but then they kind of stop. You're like, well, what did we do wrong? And, and, And foundationally, there are some principles that matter more than Kanban, 5S, A3, and so forth. This is another episode of our Innovation and Leadership series where we interview rocket scientists, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, and a wide variety of other high achievers. If you like what you hear, we're also going to be releasing exclusive bonus materials like PDF checklists, reports, and presentations, but only for members of the collective. If you're interested in those, as of this recording, you can still join for free on the Ideation Collective website, which is iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. Also, before getting rolling, we want to invite you to consider helping the charity our founders started called Child Rescue. We work to combat child sex trafficking in the United States and abroad. One of our foreign projects we're working on right now is helping to build an aftercare orphanage in Cusco, Peru. To learn more about that, please come to the Child Rescue section on our website, iCollective.co slash Child Rescue. So with that out of the way, let's get to the interview. Gary, thanks for being on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Jess. Thanks for having me. So I'm excited to be back down here at OC Tanner. Um, I uh, On the show, for sure, we're going to talk about my first time here and some of the things I saw that I hadn't seen at any company anywhere. Oh, good. I can't wait to hear what you have to say about that. <laughs> but for people who don't know, tell us what OC Tanner is. So OC Tanner Company is a recognition uh, company. We help companies appreciate their people who do great things. And we do that by providing the products and the services that companies would use to appropriately recognize things like years of service, safety achievement, uh, strong performance, individual results, and so forth. Uh, We do it all over the world. We have sales reps just about everywhere. We have offices. Uh, headquarters is here in Salt Lake. Yeah, tell us where tell us where all your offices are. We have an uh, uh, office and a warehouse and factory up in Toronto. We have one in the UK. We have facilities in Singapore, Mumbai, and Sydney. Okay. So, and and how long ago did you guys start? So we are, uh, I want to say, eighty nine years old as a company. Uh, Mr. Tanner's daughter, Mr. Tanner founded the company, and his daughter is currently our chair of the board. Okay. So you beat the five-year statistic. We beat it. (laughs) And we keep beating it. And we're going to continue to beat it. (laughs) Um, Okay. So talk about some of the fun things that you guys have made. Um, starting with the thing yeah. that I think is the coolest is the Olympic rings. People love when they come here, they love to see our display on the Olympic medals. So for the 2002 Winter Olympics, we made the uh, the gold, silver, 
and bronze medals that uh, were given out. That was a that was a fantastic experience. Uh, we we actually created a totally different type of look for the medals than had ever been used before, because when we went out and did market studies on on the Olympic medals, we found that what Olympians said was that people want to hold. You know, they asked to hold the medal. Can I hold that? And uh, the the typical round shape doesn't fit nicely in your hand. So uh, what we designed was uh, it kind of feels like a river rock in your hand, something that you pick up. It's smooth and it's fun. It's tactile. And you kind of want to chuck it. You know, you, you don't do it, but, but you kind of want to. And uh, totally different design and feel. And, and I was very delighted when the Olympic Committee bought off on it. They loved the idea. The other unique thing about our business as it connects to the medals is uh, we, are the, we are the only Olympics medals that are customized to each event and to the recipient. So every other Olympic medal, winter or summer, just says – you know, the name of the country and the city and the year. Uh, ours actually have a picture cut into the metal on the back of the event, and then engraved in it is the actual specific uh, achievement that the person has. So, because we believe that the recognition needs to be specific, it needs to be unique, it needs to feel like it's mine in order to really be powerful. We teach that to our customers, and we ought to do that with the Olympic medals too. We also provide rings for every U.S. Olympian winter and summer. Uh, for every Olympics, um, they everyone gets a ring. We just give it to them, and then those who uh, medal have a special inscription uh, carved into their ring, which is very nice. That's cool. Well, and you know, on your we'll have a page for you on Ideation Collective. Great idea. Yeah, I thought so too. Uh, we'll put the <laughs> video of how those rings get made. Oh, we'll yeah. post that on there. It's it's kind of a fascinating oh, process. I thought it was. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Um, so I think one of the most Interesting things when we when I came on that first tour here with the Shingo Institute and all the continuous improvement guys was you're showing us around and it started you know it felt like a tour at first and then things started happening like we go into this one area and you're like wow this room all <laughs> these all of these machines used to be like 12 feet this way these guys uh, these guys figured out a different way to get some efficiency out of this room I guess uh, this is great <laughs> and I was like. Here's like a significant process change that happened, yeah. and and the guy in charge here had no idea that it happened, and is excited that they made that change without telling him. <laughs> and I'm used to like the corporate ego all over the place, where people talk a good game about empowering their workers, but really they just want to be the dictator. Yeah, I mean, that's being harsh, but you know they maybe they have struggle letting go of some decisions. And uh, here's a guy who's, like, excited that people were innovating without him. And right. that was, like, the start of, like, okay, maybe this place is different. Well, you know, we, uh, we actually try to teach all of our leaders the importance of uh, the principle of lead with humility. And what we try to teach is that uh, in order for an organization to rapidly improve, it can't be driven from the top. It can't be driven from a leader who feels like I know best. It really has to be based upon this idea that every leader believes that the person who's closest to the job understands it best. And therefore, my job as a leader is to get the most out of each person in terms of improving the processes around them. So when we walked into that team that day, uh, they had decided that there was some equipment that they didn't need right in the middle of their line. They, they had pulled it out. They'd shortened up the line. And, and I, I still remember the looks on their faces. They knew we were coming for a tour. 
And uh, I'm a little embarrassed that I, I, I hadn't, I wasn't already aware that it had happened. I don't know if it happened like a, a week earlier and I hadn't seen it. Um, but I don't know if you remember the, the looks the team were all giving. They were all looking out of the cell waiting for us to arrive because they wanted to see my expression <laughs> when I came in. And, and uh, I was, of course, delighted. Uh, they saved something like 15 feet off of that cell. And uh, every one of our teams is always shrinking up. They're always changing things. I, every time I walk into a cell, I see things that I don't know what they are, and I have to ask. And they're absolutely delighted to explain to me uh, the newest thing that they're trying, the newest thing that they're doing. Uh, every team member feels like they are personally responsible to drive the improvements in quality, efficiency, delivery, safety, morale for their team. They own it. Uh, I just check in with them and see how they're doing and uh, maybe provide some training, some development that might help them do it better. Sure. You know, um, we were talking about this earlier, how, again, you know, consulting with a number of different organizations across the country and in some other countries, Almost every leader I talk to can spit that kind of stuff out. And there's a poster mm. on the wall that says it. Mm. And what I was really excited about this interview is where I feel like you guys are, are international leaders on is getting that into the DNA, like yeah. getting it off the wall and into the way people actually live their daily life. Um, and it was, it was a bit of a mind shift for me hanging out with the Shingo guys and coming to hang out with you guys. Um, you know, you talk about saving 15 feet, right? And I'm thinking about like big corporate initiatives and, and I'm thinking about like, let's do some project that has these big numbers involved. Yeah. Right. And I feel like there's like this mindset that I've been learning from you guys about. It's almost like, no, let's collect all the little flecks of gold. Right. Let's not just wait for a nugget. Let, let's get every fleck of gold along the way. Yeah. Well, actually I hadn't thought I hadn't planned this, but <laughs> let's talk about your guys gold manufacturing and why flecks of gold like literally matter to you guys. Well, so in, uh, in some of the products that we make, we use precious metals, be it gold or, or silver. And we also use uh, precious stones and gems and some of the custom jewelry that we make, the corporate jewelry that we make. So uh, certainly being careful and collecting our dust around here and and uh keeping yeah what does track. that look like collecting the dust uh it's it's just it's suction you know we have good suction we we design we, we actually build all of our own equipment uh, because we find that nobody else makes it exactly the way we want it and when you buy another piece of equipment you've got to modify it to make it work what you want to do anyway uh, we do have a couple of things that we've bought that we've just tricked out, you know, with a bunch of different pieces we've added to it. We do design of experiments to figure out how to take process capability. Uh, we have a bonding machine that comes in with a capability of like 85%. We need 99 plus. So there's at least five different components that we've added to this thing. And, uh, and when we tell the manufacturer that we're now getting 99 plus out of it, you know, they're astonished. How do you do that? We say, well, we're not going to tell you because you sell to our competitors, you know? <laughs> so uh, we, we make our own machinery generally because we, we need, you know, like, for example, collecting dust, you don't want a shell that is square to optimize the suction. You know, you want to have rounded edges. You want to have it come out towards you. Uh, so we design everything to work as well as possible given the requirements that we have. Yeah. And so, and tell me, tell us your title now and how long you've been here. Yeah. So, uh, I am the executive vice president of supply chain and manufacturing. And, uh, I've been at OC Tanner company for almost 29 years, coming up on 29 years. I started here as an intern, uh, between my first and second year of MBA school, I came in as a marketing intern. And I worked for four years in marketing, and uh, the president of manufacturing, the guy who had 
who had created it basically was retiring. And our CEO had a vision of uh, our results weren't all that great. We had bad quality, a really long lead time. It was like 26 days to manufacture a product and, uh, and a lot of complaints from the field. And our, our, uh, our CEO wanted a world-class manufacturing facility. And so they hired – they posted a job for a facilitator of change. And that sounds like a cool title. And, and it was also promotion. It was a director-level job. So I'm like, hey, you know, I get promoted, and everybody loves change, so this will be good. And uh, so I came over to manufacturing as a facilitator of change, and that was 25 years ago. Just kind of hung on and uh, kept making things happen. Um, and, 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 and we have transitioned uh, manufacturing to now be uh, very high-quality very short lead time. That that product that used to take us 26 days to manufacture now takes us 20 minutes. And last year it was 40 minutes. And the year before that it was an hour. So, you know, we've been doing this for 25 years and yet we continue to just have huge improvements. And again, it's it's the people who are doing it. It's the team members who are doing that. It's not corporate projects or management-led projects. You know, it's actually another reason I was looking forward to this interview is, you know, the business press, they're always looking for the latest startup or somebody that created the, the newest gadget on Kickstarter. These are the innovators in America, right? Yeah. But there is the, there's these entrepreneurs, these innovators within corporate America that don't always get the airtime. And yet you think about like that level of performance difference. Yeah. Um, you know, we're big fans of the Singularity University guys that invented the XPRIZE and all that. Right. And they're constantly talking about exponential technologies and the cost of solar that drops in half every year and these things. And I feel like not everybody knows about the kind of stuff that you guys do and, right. and other people involved in Shingo of like these like drastic improvements that after the drastic improvement, you think that's it. Like they've, they've accomplished it. They crossed the finish line. And yeah. then next year again. You don't know, like the previous year, you have no idea where that extra could come from. And then the previous year, it's a whole order of magnitude difference again. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, so I don't believe, I I think low-hanging fruit is a myth. I I think that you can come in and you can pick what you would call the low-hanging fruit and you turn around and it's all still there. I think there is always low-hanging fruit. So I don't don't believe that you can get these big gains and then it starts to slow down because it becomes harder and harder to get gains. I think if that if people are experiencing that, it's probably because they're controlling the improvements too much as opposed to uh, spreading the improvements amongst all of the people. If you really believe that all the people are able to make improvements – and if you don't, you know, you mentioned before the small gains. Uh, there's there's a, a great book that, that uh, we're reading as a company. We started reading it a couple of years ago. It's called Two Second Lean. Uh, it's by uh, Paul Akers. And uh, and Paul is Paul is a very high energy uh, business owner. Uh, he, he see, I think he would. I don't think he'd be offended if if he heard that I described him as kind of being over the top. You okay. know, he he he's he's over the top. But, uh, boy, this book is fantastic because it, it talks about every person working every day to find an improvement, a two-second improvement. Save three pennies today. That's all we're asking for. Come in today and find a way to make things better. And, you know, when you first say to a team member, hey, we want you to make things better, their first thought is all the things that everyone else has to do. You know, if customer service would only do this, uh, we would be so much better. If finance would fix that. We'd be so much better. If sales would stop doing this other thing, we'd be so much better. And 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 when you say to them, no, no, focus on something right here in front of you. You know, make it make an improvement right here. They think, yeah, there's some things I can do here, but they're not nearly as big for the company as as these other things are. 
But if you can get them to make one of those, a little two-second improvement, distance, speed, process, capability, safety, whatever, uh, they do it, and two things happen. One is they're like, oh, that was cool. That felt good. And they realize, hey, we just saved $13,247.16 for the year. You know, they, they, they realize that. They do the math. They say, that was good. They do another one. It's not long before the, the team is no longer talking about the stuff that everyone else If IT would just fix this or whatever, instead they're realizing we can have a huge impact right here. And, and every person makes things happen every day. And so I want to talk about this. I want to flesh that out because that sounds great, but a lot of people uh, maybe haven't seen how that the, the whole cycle of how that's implemented and the um, so for starters, you know, lean and continuous improvement, very sexy right now in the lean startup, the technology, the e-commerce world. But uh, you got into this more than a year ago, didn't you? When, <laughs> when, when did you start getting so, into this? So we've been doing continuous improvement before the word lean existed. The word lean came out with the book, The Machine That Changed the World. And we'd been doing this for about four or five years before that book came out. And, and it was kind of like, oh, okay, well, that's what we're doing. We're doing lean. And uh, I, think, I think people are getting better at it. They're starting to figure it out. But the problem a lot of companies have uh, when they try to implement lean is that they implement some of the tools of lean. They put Kanban in or, or they, they standardize processes or uh, they do 5S. And they say to themselves, okay, we did lean. And I really think when you first do that, you get some gains, but then they kind of stop. And you're like, well, what did we do wrong? And, and, and foundationally, there are some principles that matter more than Kanban, 5S, A3, and so forth. And that is respect for people and leading with humility. I think you've got to build this foundation, this cultural belief that, that people are going to drive the gains. And then you don't just empower people. You don't just say, okay, you guys, I, I empower you. Go, go make great things happen. You know, And they like they look around, ah, what do I do first? Really, you got to spend some time training, developing, teaching uh, before you can turn them loose. So yeah. we've, we've, done, we've done hours and hours and hours of training of our people, teaching them problem-solving methodologies, uh, teaching them how to work together. We've spent the same amount of time, maybe more with leadership, teaching them to get out of the way, to stop trying to control, to stop making everything go through them. And some people can't do that. Some leaders choose not to manage that way, and they frankly don't fit here. You know, we have to find something else for them to do. In the end, um, if, you can, if you can teach people the right tools and then align them to corporate strategy, align them to value to the client, then they know what to work on. Now I know what to work on. I know how to do it. I just got to find something to do it to. You know, I feel like, do you know this book, uh, The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle? Yes, I do. Okay. I feel like this is like a talent hotbed for that because now you get asked to speak all over the place about <laughs> what you guys have been, you know, practicing enough that I, if we could do a brain scan, I'm sure you've got a big chunk of cordial real estate dedicated to this because you've just spent so much time on it. Like you talked about starting this five years before that book came out. How long ago is that? So 25 years ago. So when I first came... As a facilitator of change, that was 25 years. Yeah. And we began, we began with people. We began... We, yeah, we, I, was, I was wondering about this because I know you've been, doing, you've been heavily involved with the Shingo folks. What other methodologies or who, other, whoever, who else have been your big influences along this? So uh, the, the Shingo model is the one that we've used since the beginning. We latched onto it uh, about five years into our journey. Before that, we were empowering people. We were teaching people, trying to get people to form together as teams. 
Uh, and for us in those early years, a team meant you'd get together for a 15-minute meeting of complete silence. You know, I'd ask questions <laughs> like, anybody know what happened to our quality last week? And everyone just look at the floor, you know. Uh, now you go to a team meeting and they're, they're, they're hotbeds of, of innovation and problem solving. Um, one of the books- I'm going to stop that for one second. Okay. Because when I would hear that before coming and seeing it in the wild here, okay, in the wild. Yeah. I thought that was like my vision of what that looked like sounded much more like something that would be on Bloomberg television of the, the new invention, whatever. But it's like it's, – it's amazing to me like instead of like venture capital zero to Google, it's like you guys are doing like the Warren Buffett compound interest where it's like time <laughs> – yeah. like it's win – it's like base hit after base hit after base hit after base hit. Right. And then like compounding – those numbers are like are actually the compound numbers are actually bigger than the zero to sixty numbers. Yeah, like, yeah. Um, oh, I can't remember the numbers from your from your tour, but weren't you? T- do you remember having stats about how much space has shrunk as people have got efficient? Yeah. Do you have any of those numbers? We're, you can we're talk actually about? using we're producing more and using sixty percent less space. Uh, the, now the space that used to be manufacturing is being occupied by customer service teams, by IT te- IT teams. Um, we we pull out of space that we don't need anymore. And what does that rent cost over eighty nine years? Do you oh, it's got to be not, huge, right? Right? Yeah, yeah. And not having to to build additional office space and so forth. That's a big deal. Well, you look at like how gorgeous the refinishing of the outside of this building is. Oh, I was like, thank you. Super yeah. impressed when I came in that That's new my lobby. Project. I'm very excited about it. Yeah. I didn't know you were running that. Yeah, I am actually running the project. Yeah. That that lobby when you come in and you see the the office that's sticking out over the huge hallway, whatever, like <laughs> that's pretty impressive. Yeah, very nice. We needed a bigger space where all of the employees of the company. We have 1,500 employees here. We needed a bigger space where they could all come together into one space. We hold meetings, uh, company-wide meetings, three times a year, and we just didn't have a space that worked well. Now we do, which is nice. Well, and like I'm sure building that auditorium is a lot easier of a conversation when manufacturing is now taking up 60% less space. Yeah, yeah right? Yep, absolutely. It's very, we haven't had to spend the money on other things. We haven't had to spend it. So Yeah. Um, can you talk about one of the other things that I was really interested to actually see in person for the first time? This, like, I feel like you guys do things structurally to reinforce these concepts. Like, everybody can talk a good game of anything is up for change here. Nothing is permanent, right? People yeah. can talk about that. And then as soon as somebody makes a suggestion, like, oh, no, we can't do that. Right. Where you guys, like, all your equipment, you put it on wheels. Right. Like, it, it's almost like sending the message, hey, this, this thing could move. That's right. That's right. Well, in fact, uh, I'll tell you a quick story about that. And then, uh, and, then, and then I'd like to tell you maybe how we do our improvement yeah, methodology yeah. in the teams. So the story is that we, we had things on wheels, but we didn't yet have all the teams totally combined. We had, we had a team downstairs that was connected to a team upstairs. So they would flow their work up and anytime you have distance it's tough to think you know systematically and so the teams wanted to be closer together and and i remember a uh, a team came to me one day after their team meeting they said hey we want to move our second floor team down next to our first floor team and i said yeah i know you do that's great everyone wants to do that that's the end goal but you know we've got 15 of these teams it's going to take some coordination give us some time and they left. They were happy, I thought. Uh, came back the very next week and said the same thing. Hey, we want to move our, our second four team. I'm like, yeah, I know. You guys are so awesome. You know, you, you're, you're thinking absolutely correctly. Give us some time. Uh, well, we're going to get to this. And they left. They didn't come back for like three weeks. 
When they came back this time, they said, hey, we wanted you to know that on Monday, we're moving our second floor team down next to our first floor team. I'm like, what are you talking about? Next to you? Where? Uh, There's that R&D stuff there. Yeah, we cleaned it out. Uh, I'm embarrassed. I I didn't notice that. Uh, Well, what about power, air, gas? Yeah, we had it all put in. I walk over there. I look at it. It's beautiful. They got this fantastic plan that they're going to shut down after first break on Monday. They're all going to go upstairs and push these machines to the elevator and down. They're going to set it up. They're going to start up again after lunch. It's, it's, it's a really beautiful plan. And so, of course, okay, do it. And uh, that day, all of a sudden, equipment is moving down the hall, and all the rest of the teams are like, hey, where are they going? So I was like, well, they're, they're moving down by their team downstairs. Who told them they could do that? No one. They're just doing it. It's kind of the beginning of this, this chaotic uh, improvement methodology where everyone realized if you really want to get something done, don't, don't wait for Gary. You know, uh, he's, he takes too long. We just got to do things ourselves, got to take things into hand. They brought that equipment down, and they, they didn't start up after lunch, so they missed their target. They started up after second break. But if you think about that, it took them four hours to move half of a cell to combine together, and there's no way I could have made that happen. I don't think I could have pulled together a team that got it running in four hours exactly the way they wanted it, and, and it ran very smoothly. They made it happen. Um, so anyway, that's that's kind of an example of, of how teams know. It was kind of the beginning of teams realizing we control our own destiny. You know, um, there's this great book, Pete Blaber, um, Delta Force Operator, came out with last year, or um, that I read last year called, uh, I think it's called The Men, The Mission, and Me. Hmm. And he talks about this idea of flattening organizations, pushing the decision maker down to the guys who have eyes on the problem. And... Um, I think people again. It gets talked about. There's, there's a. I mean, you guys just made Fortune Magazine's 100 Best Companies to Work For again. Yes, two right? times in a row. We were very excited. Thank you, thank um, you. But you know, there could be a. There's could be a quick article in here. You know, we could probably flip this magazine open. It'd be in there, right? But it wouldn't capture what I saw happening. Where you guys encourage people who um, maybe society wouldn't naturally say, "Oh, this person's a genius," right? right? They don't. They don't look at. They don't have the Ivy League degree. They may not have any degree. Okay. Um, I, I was amazed by the diversity and how many different refugees and different folks yeah. work here, right? Right. Who are not the classic, like, oh yeah, that's our business management genius. Put them up front, right? Mm-hmm. They don't. Ha- they don't uh, maybe fit the stereotypes, but because you guys have these things that are like like a systematic, we want to hear your suggestion, right? And then they see the suggestion actually get implemented. It's not just a into the black box of oblivion. No wonder people put in more suggestions. You yeah. guys actually do them. So, so what every team does is they have a card. We call it the improvement card. And it has a place on there for the team member to write down a problem that they see and then a potential countermeasure, a, a possible way to fix it. And then they post it on the team board. And so over the course of the week, these cards are piling up on the board. And, and you'll see team members pausing on their way to break to kind of look through the ideas, see what's coming up. And they're also talking with each other about it. In the weekly team meeting, then, the, the whole factory shuts down for half an hour once a week, and, and everyone's solving problems for half an hour. The team pulls those ideas off the board, and they go through them, and they, they talk about them. And, you know, someone's got a, a lame idea, everyone tells them, ah, we're not going to do that one, and this is why, which is different from some committee in a back room 
stamping rejected on it and sending it back, right? In this case, the team member hears the arguments and they realize, okay, it's not as good as I thought it was. But other ideas they talk about and someone adds to it, well, we could, and we could do this. We could make it work like that. And the team basically implements the idea. They're, they're implementing all of their own ideas, which is very powerful. And one of the reasons I think why they're so strong at that here at OC Tanner, you mentioned the, the refugee situation. Salt Lake City is an international Red Cross destination. So for uh, as long as I've been here, there have been people coming here from war-torn parts of the world. And um, it's astonishing the quality of people that move to Salt Lake City, uh, people who actually are, are fully capable and do astonishing things in their homeland. They come here and they don't have, they don't have any of their things that they, they can do here, uh, but they're, they're very capable. And then the very best of those people come work at OC Tanner. We put them in a team together, you know, eight people from eight different countries speaking eight different languages. And uh, you get them to talk to each other about problems and solutions, they come up with astonishing answers. They come up with better solutions than I could on my own. But I, I believe that is true of any group of people. If they'll talk things through, I'd rather have them implement their idea than my idea. Because I, you know, part of this respect every individual that I spoke about says that a leader who really believes that looks at every person they come across and says, there's something about you worthy of respect. There's something, there's some place that you have something on me. There's some way in which you are better. I don't know what it is, but I'd love to find out. I'd love to learn about you. And if I believe that, then I let you guys go. I let you solve problems. You know, I feel like, I guess my analogy for that is like everybody, you know, you take this whole orchard of a team, right? And, and maybe somebody whose tree has been producing a lot of fruit, they got promoted, Right. Right. Um, but what you're talking about, if everyone has these unique life experiences or these unique perspectives where they're uniquely qualified to produce some fruit on that subject. And yet so often our structures are almost they almost teach people, no, whoever's tree produces the most fruit. That's the only fruit we're going to gather from the orchard. Mm. <laughs> right. Where I feel like the nature of um, because you guys actually walk the walk of you said you were going to listen to our suggestions and try them out, even if the leader thought they were dumb, if the rest of the team agrees it's smart, you're going to do it. Yeah. When they saw that they were actually paid attention to, no wonder they come to work tomorrow with their brain turned on. Right. Instead of, my, you know, you think manufacturing or assembly line type work at all. How many people think, oh, this could be replaced by a robot? But you guys have attached a brain there because the brain came to work turned on because they thought somebody might actually listen to them if they had a better idea. So they're naturally looking for these ideas. It's like you're gathering fruit from every tree in the orchard instead of just the tree that produces the most fruit. Well, you know, yeah. So I'll tell you, Jess, part, part of what I think provides the motivation for that is, you know, our mission statement about helping companies appreciate people who do great work. We do that because we believe that appreciating great work uh, inspires people uh, to do better work, to do great things. And as, as, as employees are inspired, companies improve. And so we teach every, um, every one of our team members that as you're doing this 50-second process, you're not just doing a process. You're part of this big solution. You're part of making – in fact, let me tell you a story. So I'm standing behind uh, a woman named Feli Salazar. And she, she retired about three years ago. She's working on our watch line, one of our watch lines. And I'm watching her work, and she, I'm behind her, and she's kind of humming, kind of bouncing a little bit, and, and she looks pretty happy. And uh, she finishes her process. She goes to start another one, and I say to her in transition, hey, Feli, how you doing today? And she said, I'm great. And I said, well, you know what? I, I can tell you're great. Tell me, tell me why are you doing so great today? And she said, because I just finished a 15-year award for so-and-so. She read me his name. 
And when he gets this, it's going to make his day. And I thought to myself, okay, I don't have to worry about Feli's quality. I don't have to worry about why Feli got up this morning and came to work. I don't have to worry if she's engaged in making things better, right? She's going to drive improvements because she really believes that every 50 seconds, I'm just making up a process time, that I spend is basically making something good happen in the world. I want to be part of that. I want to be part of something bigger than myself. So their key to make things better isn't driven by dollars. It's really driven by a satisfaction, a sense that they're making a difference in the world. And I think I think great improvement uh, cultures will be driven by a need bigger than the people themselves, something that they want to be part of. Yeah, you know, it reminds me, I was telling you that story earlier about one of my mentors who was the first guy, the guy in the first episode of, of this show, Chip. Um, I remember one time I was having some problem in one of my organizations and he was, he was coaching me through my, my mistakes as a leader. <laughs> but he said when he got made head of SWAT team that people would come to him and they'd say, you know, hey, sir, how do we do this? And he'd, he'd say, he kind of had the attitude of like, well, you are asking the right guy. I got put in charge for a reason, let me tell you. Right. And then when he changes this, this concept of, you know, um, he's going to start getting into the leadership development business. And he, he says to me, you can't believe how much work I get done for how little I do. He said, what would happen is people would say, you know, hey, sir, uh, how, how, do we, how do we approach this situation? And he's like, he would say, well, I just asked them. Well, I don't know how you think we should approach it. Right. And they're like, oh, well, um, well I, I was kind of thinking we should put two guys around the corner and do this. And he's like, okay. And they're like, really? And he's like, listen, you're probably wrong and you're going to make a mistake. But that's okay. Nobody's going to die on this one. Right. And uh, there's no way for you to like stretch your uh, creativity muscles if we don't let you make some mistakes. So we're going to do it your way. And there's like so much ownership that happens, right? And it's like, to me, it's, fun. it's, it's almost like a paradox that the more work you let them do, the more they like their job. And like the more engaged of like this discretionary effort they could bring to work, they're choosing to bring that when you gave them more responsibility right. and more authority. Well, so let's, let's talk about making mistakes. Uh, we have a process that we like teams to follow when they have a big challenge they're trying to accomplish. So in addition to the day-to-day the -day Kaizen, the two-second, three-penny savings, uh, we also give teams a big challenge to, to accomplish. You know, For example, uh, it'll be a six-month challenge, and we want you to take your throughput time from 40 minutes to 20 minutes, for example. And uh, we use what we call the improvement kata, with the kata just being like a, a step of martial arts routines you might do, right? So we're saying we let's go through a process to improve this, this big picture, to, to meet this challenge. And the way it looks is this. Uh, immediately when you give someone this huge challenge, they have all these reasons why you can't do it. Uh, they start to list them off right off the bat. Well, there's this, there's that, there's that. And and mostly, in, in most situations, that's enough to kill the project. You know, they, they put such big obstacles out there. It's like, oh, okay, never mind. Uh, what we do is we write those down on an obstacles page. Excellent. Let's get that one down. Well, you also can't do it because of this. Perfect. Let's write that one down. And here's a big problem. Right. Love that. Let's write this down. And all throughout the process, oh, you know what we forgot? We can't do it because of whatever. Good. Let's write that down. We just write them all down. And then you begin by saying, okay, which one of these obstacles do you want to go after first? And, uh, and, and people say, well, let's, let's start with this one. And then this, ask a simple question. What do you want to try today to fix this obstacle? Let's try something. Let's test something. And the team chooses something. Let's try this. It doesn't matter how crazy it is because you're just going to do it for a day. 
And it's totally possible that you're going to be totally wrong with that as a solution. But the key is you're going to learn something from doing it. So there's no danger in putting anything on the table. Uh, there's no, you know, usually you say, well, who's the creative person in the room? One, everyone looks at one person. There's the creative person. What this process allows is for everyone to be creative, for everyone to come up with something. What if we tried this? And, and you write it down. Okay, let's try that. Now, here's the key. If we do that, what do we think will happen? You have to actually write it down. We think this will happen. Because if you don't write it down, people always pretend like they knew that was going to happen. But this is the part, like, lean is so cool these days, the lean startup and whatever, yeah, right? Yeah. And people do not come up with this disprovable, scientific, here's our guess. Right, here's right. A, like, in a, we're going to put it in writing. Here's what we guess. We're going to do this, and this is what we guess is going to happen, and we're going to be right or wrong. We're going to be right or wrong. That discipline to actually write it down, in the people I'm interacting with, almost none of them are are being disciplined enough to actually write that down in advance. Then, then they're not doing it scientifically, right? They're really just kind of bouncing around, doing whatever comes to their mind. Uh, by write, and we have a form that we have a form on the wall that they use, and so there's a place for them to write. The action we're going to take today is this, and what we think is going to happen is that. And then there's these two lines that say, "Okay, now go run your test for the day." And then the very next box is what happened. You write down what happened, and what did you learn from this? So every day, that every team is running an experiment that somebody came up with that they think will solve a problem. And they're defining what's going to happen when they do it. And then they're describing what did we learn from this today. So mistakes, uh, errors, uh, doing the wrong thing, it's all learning. What did we learn today? The next day you say, well, did we? are there any other obstacles we should add? Do you want to go after a different obstacle or do you want to try the same one? Uh, what are we going to do today? And you just we just repeat this day after day after day. When you walk around the, the, the company, you look at these different improvement kind of boards, you'll see these big obstacle lists. Sometimes it's two pages taped together, you know, running down the side of the wall, and you'll see obstacles scratched off of the list. And you can always tell how far they are into their improvement kata by how many obstacles still remain. Uh, one that's got two pages of obstacles, they're just getting started. One where half of the obstacles are eliminated. You look at the graph, you can see the results improving. Uh, they're making great things happen. Well, I feel like a lot of this is the lead by example of, you know, senior management has signaled we actually care about this. Yeah. And so people are picking up on those signals, whether right. the written ones or not. Um, you know, I'm interested in your thoughts on this. I, you know, a different mentor of mine, Van Zaki, is the uh, bureau chief, bureau of public debt. You know, in charge of 16 trillion dollars for the U.S. government. Right? He talks about leaders and the tyranny of the to-dos list and mm -hmm. having more to-dos than hours in a day. Right. And um, and I think you know, you guys have invested so much in training, but not as like this HR initiative for those other people, like where you have personally paid the price and put so many hours in yourself. Um, I'd love to have you talk about this because so much, again, across whether you're talking uh, the military organization clients of mine, corporate America, the Microsofts and Oracles, the, the 200,000 student school districts, like all these different people I advise. What I run into most cases elsewhere is, oh, yeah, that's a good train. That, that'll be good training for those staff. Mm. And, and the employees and the leaders are like, yeah, it would be good. It would be good for me to go, you know, to show, you know, to show solidarity. They don't actually think they need to learn from it yeah. as much. And and even the ones that do feel like they need to, like, oh, that probably would be good for me. But I'm just too busy. I'm just too busy. 
And it's like they're they're just making the minimum payment yeah. on the credit card over and over. They're just yeah. keeping up with the to-dos list, but they're not doing that like they're not paying the price to set aside the ringing phone and like invest in that brain space of like the the martial arts training of their brain for like this methodology that you spent yeah. so much time on. Um, and yet you look at your results, right? The compound results of that over 25 years have moved a 26-day process to 20 minutes with such blatant quantifiable results because you guys are always writing all these numbers down right i went on that shingo tour to japan and you're seeing these guys the numbers are just down down down, right what is your thought on why well someone who has been in the rat race of the to-dos list world and i just every day i'm worn out and i still have to do as i didn't get done what advice would you have for people like that who i i count myself in a lot who want to move to more of no i'm going to take the time to do this training even though there's to-dos i probably could do you know, I, I think uh, I think most of the to-dos don't matter. And mostly we write down stuff. Something will come to our mind. I really ought to do that. We write it down. And if you don't do it, I don't think it's going to matter. I think there's really only one or two really critical things that I ought to be working on today. As long as I know what those are, then the rest of the list isn't a big deal. And even then, the primary thing I can do is is go visit people. Go be on the floor. Go talk to them. And, and the danger when I do that is I can walk into a team and if I look at something funny, if I even cross my eyes a little bit or, or I kind of sit back and glare... I have created a to-do list for the team. Or if I ask about something, hey, why is that there? Well, now I've, I've created a, a task for them to do. They feel like they have to solve that. So as a leader, not only, not only do I need to go and be instead of sitting and doing my to-do list, but it, what I do when I go really matters. If I'm, if I'm pointing out problems, uh, I'm assuming, again, that, that I know the biggest problems for that team, that somehow I've noticed. And, 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 you know, it's really hard not to do. Any leader wants to feel like they're adding value, and they think they do that by coming in and making these supposedly keen observations, you know, based on something they've seen. Uh, but they're, I think they're wrong. I think the better question when you walk into a team is uh, – what are the big issues you're working on? What are the things that are bugging you? How can I help you? You know, that's that's a how are you going about solving it? Just asking good questions like that. Will you tell your rock climbing analogy? Ah, uh, yeah, absolutely, certainly. So I think, uh, and, I, and I've actually got this from some people who practice the improvement kata. Uh, so it's not my original thinking, um, but but it's the idea we we tend to th- sometimes we think of the typical leader as being on a rock climbing tour and and the the people their reports are are beneath them. And they're leading them up the the face of the rock. Come on, follow me. You know, I'll show the path. You know, look where I put my hand here. You might consider that. You know, as you go up, that that that's the typical leader analogy. And I actually think that the leader is hanging from the team members, and that I'm totally dependent upon them to do their job right. Uh, and I fully believe the company is in the hands of the team members, just like that. Hanging down below here, I can't I can't see the good rock holds. I can't see the best place for them to put their hand or their foot. Uh, I've got to count on them. They're closest to it. They can see what to do. My job was to train them before they got on the face. My job was to teach them how to do it fundamentally sound and then to continue to reinforce that from below. And trust them. Trust them. i got to trust that they know what to do and that they will do it right. And I can remind them continually, remember – 
do things the way, do things the right way. Make sure you do things the right way. Are you focusing on process up there? Are you trying to make things better? Good, good, good. And then other than that, it's motivation, right? It's cheering them on. It's encouraging them, expressing complete confidence in them. Uh, that's my job as a leader. But again, and I guess, you know, your whole company is built on it because you are out helping other companies with their appreciation. We, we just, we just, on one of my other shows, we were just talking about this, this myth that if you pay poor, like the best way to get more performance out of people is to just keep paying them more and more. <laughs> but we starve them from, from recognition and, and like managers, well, they know what they think that this concept of, well, they know they, they know, I think they're doing a good job. Really? You haven't actually told them. Yeah. Right. And and it makes me think, like, for myself, how often I get into the getting as many of my to-dos checked right. and not verbalizing the things that I'm happy staff got done for me. And and yet you guys have, like, clearly proven that by by letting the to-do not happen but spending that time with the staff – like the jet fuel I just I could have put in them that I had That's right. that I've neglected is is way bigger deficit for the organization than me missing one more to do. So I will tell you that uh, I, I think expressing appreciation and and honoring people for their contribution uh, is something you have to learn to do. Now, I don't if some people if it comes natural to some people it's probably those people. Who are who are genuinely full of gratitude? You know, well, those are wonderful people, right? Who who just feel so much gratitude to everybody. I think for the rest of us, we got to work at it. I have to work at it. I've been working at it for years, and it still doesn't come naturally to what me. What do you do? I know you like books like Leadership and Self-Deception. Yeah. What, what else do you do to foster gratitude? Well, uh, uh, by getting out and watching and talking to people, uh, that brings a lot of gratitude to your heart. As you, as I visit with, with our team members and, and uh, see them at action, uh, then I honor them. And they feel honored by the fact that I'm there just to – I'm not there to tell them what to do. I'm there to thank them. Um, but it's funny. Uh, one of my to-dos every day is express appreciation. I have to remind myself every day to do so. And uh, we have various devices here that we use to express appreciation. Every day I have to stop and think, who, who, do, I, who do I need to thank? today who can i give that to and i just I like make that sure. you write it down yeah be, you know and give yourself that visual reminder because right. for me I, like having a system like that I, I think would be helpful to me instead of thinking i've got to remember to remember to thank somebody every day like having a visual oh I didn't. yeah so think about think about the uh, the tyranny of the to-do list um express appreciation is a much better to do than fill out your time card <laughs> i i would i wouldn't worry about any of that other stuff uh, put put express appreciation at the top of your list. Uh, go out and thank people and, and recognize the the power and what they're doing. That's great. Um, you know, one of the questions we always like to ask people is uh, maybe who set a good example for them, either early in their career, or early in life, uh, yeah. on how to treat people. Is there anyone that stands out to you? Actually, uh, uh, there was a, a teacher in high school, uh, Coach Terrell. He taught my 10th grade English class. He was also the, the JV basketball coach. Uh, that's why we called him Coach. I grew up in Tennessee, in Memphis, and uh, Coach Terrell, um, he wanted us to learn English facts about English literature. So we were learning books and authors and titles and content and so forth. And every Friday he had a test. 
and uh, had to spew out these facts. And and uh, one Friday, I wasn't ready for the test. And my grades were important to me, and I made a really bad choice. I, I decided to cheat. And I put together a cheat sheet of all these facts, and the test comes out, and I use my cheat sheet, get a good grade. But that was pretty easy. I got away with it. And I thought, huh, how about that? And I hope I wasn't so weak that it was the very next week that I did it again. But I fear it might have been uh, the very next week I cheated again. And uh, I did this three, four, five times. It kind of became a pattern with me because it was so much easier than studying. And uh, this had been going on. I don't know how long it had been going on, but uh, I had fallen into some pretty bad habits. And one night I was at work. I worked at a local steak and shake, which is a hamburger joint out in the Midwest and in the South. And I was a curb waiter, so people would pull in, and I'd take their orders and bring them their food. And and I'm working this one night, and Coach Terrell comes driving into my steak and shake. It's like, hey, Coach Terrell, what are you doing? That was pretty cool to see him there. And I walk out there, I give him his, his menu, and he's looking over the menu, and he's making small chat with me. You know, we're just talking this and that and and what have you. And uh, how do you like your job? Oh, yeah, I like it. It's pretty good. Uh, how, do, how do your parents feel about the impact it's having on your schoolwork? And I started to say, well, it doesn't have any impact on my schoolwork. And then I realized he saw me cheat. I don't know how many times he saw me cheat, but he saw me cheat and he didn't drag me out in front of my peers. He didn't take me down to the office and give me a whooping, which is what they did in the South in the 70s. Um, he saw me cheat and it worried him somehow. And he spent time thinking about, hey, what's going on with Gary? You know, why is he doing this? And he found out what I'm. He finds out where I work. He drives to where I'm working on his own time, in a part of town he normally wouldn't be in. He was a he was a black guy, and and the steak and shake wasn't in that part of town in the '70s. You know, we there was still some of that. And uh, here he is standing in my steak and shake, coming to help me. And I'm looking. I'm having thinking all this stuff. And he's just letting me stew in it. He's just letting me think. He's just looking at the menu. And after a second, he hands the menu back, and he says, don't mess up on the things that really matter, man. He put his car in reverse, and he drove away. And he's driving away, and I'm thinking, man, I want to be like that. I want to be the kind of guy who understands why things are going wrong with somebody and who takes the time to figure it out and wants to help them, wants to make a difference in their life. I mean, what an astonishing man Goldie Terrell is that he would take the time to invest in me. And uh, he's always been one of my heroes. You know, I, I think of him a lot. I want to be like Goldie Terrell. Okay, I think that wins for best story so far in the whole All right. series. Um, yeah, you think about the long-term effect of, of being around people like that, huh? Yep. yep. Um, another question we always like to ask people is with our charity, Child Rescue, trying to combat child sex trafficking, whether it's helping build this aftercare orphanage we're working on in Cusco, Peru right now, or the the high school college prevention campaign called Backyard Broadcast we just had on NPR last night. Um, for, for, for an issue like that, do you have any advice about attracting people to want to get more involved in, in helping these kids? What advice you give to us? I think I think uh, purpose and mission are critical. Um, helping people understand that they can be part of something bigger than themselves, that it doesn't have to be, um, they don't have to change their whole life to make a difference in a lot of people's lives. Uh, filling them with a, a dream of possibilities, I think, is, is has a lot of power. That's great advice. Um, I know we've only got a few more minutes here. Um, I'd love to know, um, you know, you think about 
how you've paid this price with this continuous improvement mindset that's had such financial benefits, but also such like quality of life benefits. Like the smiles, like how much people enjoy working in your divisions as we've gone around and coming in today, the same thing, the people who greet you, who you greet them, like it's not this. They're pretty cool, right? Yeah. They're they're amazing people. And I'm just thinking, um, you know, you spent so many years cultivating this yourself, like, you know, having the discipline to work on this instead of some urgent to do, you know, fire bell kind of thing. Um, I'd love to hear, you know, things that you feel like, oh, I wish I would have figured this out, this part out sooner. I could have got better faster. Or um, why don't we start with that? Was there anything that you feel like, man, this one point years into this, I made this breakthrough and I I feel like maybe if I'd made that earlier, I could have got better faster or something like that. Well, I think I think the mistake I made, the biggest mistake I made early on, was indeed thinking that that I knew best. I was the only one initially who was saying, "Hey, we gotta we gotta fix these processes. We gotta pull people together," and no one else really wanted to do it. So I felt like I was kind of forcing them to do it. And as people would push back, uh, I would think that they just didn't like change and they just were being obnoxious. But it took me a while to realize that they were pushing back because they loved this company. They loved this company and they weren't totally convinced that, that where we were going was the best thing. And so if I could do it those first, say, three years again, uh, I would spend more time teaching, more time developing, more time creating models where people could see what it's all about. Because once I I really think once they got to see it for themselves uh, in real life, they they, they glommed onto it. They, They grabbed it. They said, this is ours. Um, frankly, you can't you can't go out at OC Tanner and 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 yank this out of their system now. There's nothing I can do to stop it. I mean, this thing's just they own it, they believe it. And if I were to say anything different, people would just be like, "Well, what's wrong with him?" Yeah, they'd out you. you. Know, they'd out me. <laughs> I'd be out it absolutely. So uh, I think maybe just more time teaching, believing, uh, less time judging people harshly, uh, give people credit, recognize that when someone's fighting against something, it's because they feel something. You got to help them with that, I think. But I'll also tell you, Jess, that uh, about eight years into this process, I told you in the first team meetings, people wouldn't even look up. They wouldn't even talk. And and getting them to talk was, in fact, I'll tell you, the first time, the first time someone talked, it was probably six months into the process. And, and there was a particular team. <laughs> That's painful six that, months. Incredible, right? Well, they were afraid. They were afraid. They'd been told to shut up and do your job, right, for their whole life. And finally, we're in a team meeting, a polishing meeting, and this is a team that has really poor quality. And I'm, I'm saying, hey, come on, guys, you, what's on with your quality? You got to tell me what's happening here. Why is your quality so bad? No one's talking. I keep asking the question. I keep asking the question. Finally, one lady says, "You want to know why our quality is bad?" I'm like, "Here it is. Here it is. She's talking." And she stood up and she pointed at another lady and she says, "It's because Katie's work looks like." Sh- I thought, oh, no, that's not what I wanted, you know. That's kind of where we were. Um, But, you know, uh, we went from there to people owning their issues and solving their issues and fixing things. And I remember remember sitting in my office one day and watching people going home. And they're walking past me, and I'm realizing, hey, look at their faces. They look confident. They look passionate. They're walking out of here with kind of a sense of who they are. And I realized for the first time, these guys are walking out that door, and they're going to go home, and they're going to make a difference. They're going to fix stuff at home. They're going to fix stuff in their community, at their schools, at their churches. 
uh, all of a sudden I saw this totally different. Is I, it because she was allowed to speak up and she didn't get fired for it? She didn't get who that that lady? I don't yeah, yeah. Know. You know, I think uh, I think it, we had to make it safe. We had to make it safe for them to share their ideas. They had to feel like they could do it. And and the only way to do that is humble leadership. The leader has to step back and let conversations happen, have to let ideas flow, right? Once people believe in themselves, they have a powerful impact. You know, they they really start to make a difference. And I I started to realize that we weren't just making things better at O.C. Tanner, but we were making things better outside of O.C. Tanner in the homes, in the communities. And we started to talk about, uh, in fact, right there on my, on my shelf, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a crystal trophy that's got a picture of a world on it. And, and we kind of adopted this idea that we're changing the world here. We're changing the world one family at a time, one community at a time. Um, and that, I think, is really the power of turning your people loose is – that it's not just your company that gets better. It's their lives, their families. It's, it's the whole world that improves. Yeah. You know, I think about the level of expertise that you have focused not so much on checking up on everybody's work and, and managing everyone and micromanaging everyone, but right. on, like, building the kind of characters that you could trust. Uh-huh. And, like, I remember we went, we went to your training division who was talking about the science of adult learning. That they had invested in. I think so many people, like, we learned some concept, we're like, this is so great. And maybe in the past, I've brought the assumption that, and I know how to implement it, and I must know everything about it since mm. I know this one principle. And so, again, I, I look up to, like, the holistic, like, the systems of systems that you guys have put in. Do you have any advice for some leader that that wants to make that transition, that wants to be more this way? And, um, like, things they could tell themselves as, like, Man, this is not this is not urgent, but if I'm really going to be the leader, it's what I need to do next. I need to invest in this training, this uh, mental process. You know, I think I think the advice I, I would give to any leader is regardless of what is happening around you, regardless of what your boss is telling you, regardless of what's happening in other departments, you you can have an impact right in your sphere of influence. You can decide that no matter what it feels like to me, I can make sure that my people feel differently. I can make things happen right here. And if you do that and if you leave yourself open to learning from everyone else and that you realize that so many people around you have so much to teach you, um, I think you, you can grow and, and develop, and, and eventually other people will start to realize there's something good happening here. What's, what's he or she doing there? Uh, I think that's when you start to be influential throughout the rest of the company. You start to, to make things happen. Uh, I would never wait for the right environment, for things to become right. I would just go out and claim it. I'd go create your own reality in those people around you, those people that you work with. Yeah. Um, tell me this. I know that you will like go back and listen to the same session of a training over and over. You told me this before, like um, whether it's joining the book clubs where, you know, your teams are putting together book clubs or whether it's going to another another training that you've already sat through before. Um, how do you, what do you tell yourself to overcome the impulse to go get real work done instead yeah. of sit in another training? Well, so, so if you, I guess if you, if you think you know it all, then there's no point in listening to somebody say something that you already know everything about. Um, I, I think believing that I've got something to learn, believing that, that I can expand my understanding, always can expand my understanding, makes all of those things interesting. 
And, and if I'm listening to other people, if I'm hearing other opinions and ideas, I'm growing faster than if I'm sitting at my desk working through things on my own. Anytime somebody comes to talk to me, I'm, I'm going to be better off than if I'm just doing this thing on my own. Do you have any thoughts about cultivating that perspective, cultivating like things uh, like a reminder or a trigger for um, how to actively change our own perspective to recognize what we don't know? Or is, is there any practice or habit or, or visual trigger or something that a leader could do to, to help shape themselves into recognizing, into spending more time recognizing what they don't know already instead of what they do know? Yeah, you know, I think uh, one of the things we use, so let me, let me start with maybe a way a team might do that and then reflect it on an individual. We create something that we call a true north which is the direction we want everybody headed all the time. And it's, it's these highly aspirational statements like no injuries, no illness, 100% quality, no defects, no returns, 100% on-time delivery, 100% process capability, 100% delight clients with new products, whatever it is. Things that, you know, it's like seek perfection. And you're, you're moving in that direction and you're always able to identify a gap between where I am as a team and where this true north is. And so a team is always willing to say, okay, I need to improve this quality or this safety or this product or whatever. And no matter how much they improve, they still haven't hit the true north. And no matter what they do, they, they can celebrate. And let's go get some more. There's more to be done. And we provide that for our team so that they, they know that there's always more work to be done. We're never done yet. And I think as an individual, uh, it's also good to have uh, a standard in front of you that, that, that you can identify and create for yourself. Say, that's what I want to be. And if you can't find an individual to emulate, then, then you at least need to create in your mind that these are the characteristics that I want to have. Right? Just like I would say uh, no injuries, um, no illness, I might also say, uh, for me, no anger. You know, I don't want to be angry. I don't want to get frustrated. Um, I, you know, I, I identify these things that I want to be as a person. And then that creates gaps. Every day I've got to close the gap. And every day I fail, right? Every day I fail. It's like, okay, you know, tomorrow I'm going to be a little bit better. I can fix this. I can improve that. And if I really want to close the gap, then anytime I hear about a learning opportunity that is in that gap, I'm interested. You know, I want to get better at that. So I'll focus on it. I, I love that. Um there's this great story in a, um, a book called Deep Change um, about a guy in the North Sea who had the job of putting a diving bell down for underwater welders. Hmm. And his boss was one of these kind of like marine drill sergeant type of guys who was known for being on time and on budget, whatever. And he had put these guys down in the diving bell and the sea started getting shaky. You know, the waves started getting big and he knew... If you left him down too long, they'd be fine underneath. But when they're coming up, the bell could unhook and he could kill all his divers. Uh-huh. And his boss comes up and says, hey, we're not going to let a little, a little bit of weather get in the way of our deadline, are we? <laughs> and at the end of the day, he's going back to his cabin saying, I just risked the life of all those guys because I left them down longer than I should. Right. And he called it his – he started journaling about his integrity gap, the difference between his stated integrity and his actual actions. And the act of just measuring it, just acknowledging when they didn't line up was this focus. And it's like, you know, you see on people who record how many calories they eat, even if they don't go on a diet, they end up getting thinner just by acknowledging it. Or like a mint.com, one of these financial things, if they just measure where their money goes, people find the the holes in their wallet, whatever. So I can see this like setting this thing of, I'm not going to get, you know, 100% no anger or whatever, no frustration, like 
the nature of like as soon as it happens, the alarm bell. You know, you there it it and you're like, oh, I did it. You know, and, and when it happens, uh, there's there's two ways to respond to something that's negative. Uh, one is you just churn on it. You, you you review it again and again, and you make your arguments better, and you make your opponent's arguments worse, and and by the time you've gone through this 18 times, you're a genius, right? And this other guy's a jerk. And that's one way to go after something that goes wrong. And the other way is to say, boy, okay, that didn't work right. What else could I have said or done that would have made that better? And and, you, and maybe even practice saying it. You try saying it out. Because sometimes you think it, it makes sense. Maybe you say it, it doesn't make sense. You say it and you think, yeah, that would have been better. I think by practicing, by, by thinking it through, uh, you get better at dealing with issues in the future. A similar situation comes up and the alarm goes off and says, ah, I blew this last time. You know, I've been here before. <laughs> I blew it last time. And, and you think, how, how did I solve it? And you, you come up with something similar. I think, I think you always got to practice. You always got to consider. So I like this idea where he said the integrity gap, and he started keeping notes. He wrote, he wrote it down he wrote today. It down. Where did I miss today? And I would just add, what, what could I have done differently? You know, what would I have said? Mm-hmm. When he yeah. says to me, we're not going to let a little bit of weather get in the way, are we? What are, my, what are my different options that don't alienate him, that don't frustrate him? What are the things that I could say? I think it's worth, worth trying some different things, you know? And, and then you try one and it doesn't work. Uh, okay, that wasn't right. You know, he got really pissed at me. I'll try something different next time. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Well, um, in closing here, is there anything that comes to mind as far as maybe like the best advice you ever received or... Or something you feel like has been kind of a, a rudder for you over the years you've come back to over and over um, that, that you feel like has been helpful in your life? Well, you mentioned you mentioned before that I like the book Leadership and Self Deception, and uh, when I when I first uh, so so one of my one of my managers uh, who reported to me was the one who introduced me to the book. He brought it to me and he said, uh, "Hey, I, I just found this. It was right after it was published. I don't know how he had got you read it. any of Terry Warner's work Nothing. before the no, Arbinger guys, not and a thing. Jim and everybody. Okay, uh, I've read a lot of it since. A lot of it I don't understand, <laughs> <laughs> but pretty cool stuff. He brings, brings it to me. And he hands it to me. And he says, "I want you to read this." Not because I don't, I don't, I'm not saying you have a problem, right? That's, that's what you always say when you hand someone that book. <laughs> um, but when I read it, I identified some real failures on my part and some things that I didn't do very well. And uh, we've all read it now. And uh, man, I, I hand them out by the girls. I've got, I've got a dozen copies on the bookshelf over there. And um, I think continually, we just trained a bunch of people yesterday in the ideas. You know, we reinforce them that. Uh, that, that, that we, we need to get beyond ourselves. We need to think about people differently. And we need to own our own problems. And uh, for me, I think that's a continuing uh, journey. I'm always thinking about uh, how did this interaction go? How do I really feel about this other person? Why do I feel that way? How can I feel differently? I think that drives me hard in my day-to-day life. That's great. I think we kind of have this in common. I, I feel like, you know, Terry that started... The Arbinger Institute, his book, Bonds That Make Us Free. Yeah. That's my one. That's, you know, I I think I counted up. I've been over through over 600 books in the last 10 years, audio and stuff. And that's the top of the top of the list for me. So I'm reading Bonds That Make Us Free and it's a thick book, you know, and there's lots of examples in there. Lots of examples that I think help you see. uh, I think you read about someone else and you realize, oh, my neighbor is, is, maybe that's why my neighbor is kind of like that. And all of a sudden I feel more compassion towards my neighbor. I don't really know that's what their background is, but I'm starting to relate this to other people. I'm about 40% into the book and I'm reading about this person who's really screwed up and I realize this is me. 
<laughs> I, I would, this happened to me over and over. The first time through the book, I yeah. would read like three pages and I'd have to stop and think for 15 minutes. Yeah. I'd be like on an airplane and I like couldn't, couldn't do anything for 15 minutes and go like, yeah. how did he write about me? Yeah, yeah. So, so here I am and my background is, is right there on black and white for everyone to read. This is who I am. This is why I'm the way I am. All my foibles and, and errors and all the things I do poorly and why I do it poorly, I can see myself clearly. And uh, I think I think his mentality, Terry's mentality, is if you can if you can understand it, you can you can own it, you can fix it. You don't have to be a victim to your past. No one does, and we can, we can make things better. And it was just very powerful for me. Uh, so I guess I thought at first he's telling me all these stories so that I can be more understanding towards other people. But then I realized ah, he's actually helped me understand myself. <laughs> uh, so great, you know I. Um I got licensed to use their material for my own one-on-one coaching practice, right? Oh, fantastic. So I, I do for some sex trafficking survivors and women who have suffered violence. I do those for free, and then I charge the CEOs <laughs> a bunch of money. As you should. <laughs> right? As you should. And no kidding, over and over, we just that's the book I ask them to have physically with them on every call because it's, hey, flip to page 35, hey, flip to page 75, mm. you know, um, Anyways, I love having that in common. That's good stuff. Appreciate how much time you've spent with us today. I'd love to keep you in the Ideation Collective family. And Thank you. I'd be delighted. And that's the show. Thanks for listening today. Again, if you're interested in the bonus materials that we will be producing, make sure to come to our website and join the Ideation Collective while it's still free. The website, iCollective.co slash free. Again, iCollective.co slash free. And as always, if you want to learn more about getting involved in helping the team rescue kids from traffickers, please visit iCollective.co slash child rescue. Hi, welcome to the Subway ad for $2.99 subs. How would you like it? Uh, I'll take Drill Sergeant, please. You got it. All right, now listen up. I want each and every one of you to drop and give me a six-inch meatball marinara, cold-cut combo, veggie delight, or black forest ham on your choice of bread with any veggies you want for just $2.99 each. Make it what you want at participating restaurants. Additional charge for extras plus applicable tax. No additional discounts or coupons may be applied.